0: Hey everyone. So uh, the school semester has begun and very soon I will be giving an exam in the classes I'm teaching at OBU. Now exams are not very fun, uh, particularly if you are a student. Uh, I get a lot of stressed looks on students faces on exam day and usually I can tell pretty quick who studied and who has not. So there's something interesting about exams. We we would rather not have to do them, but they do reveal the extent of our preparation. So in our passage of scripture today, uh, we're gonna talk about some exams, some tests, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. The author of Hebrews says all of these biblical characters, they went through tests where God tested their faith. But because their faith was genuine, God saw them through that test. And the tests strengthen their faith and reveal the genuineness of that faith. So, un, not unlike those guys, God allows us to go through tests as well. And it's important in the midst of tests that we have our faith firmly rooted and anchored in God, uh, because He's going to see us through those tests, He's going to shape and mold us to become who He wants us to be in the midst of those tests. And as we make it through those tests, it reveals the genuineness of our faith. So exams, tests, they're a part of life whether in school or whether spiritually speaking, and it's important that we flourish through those and as Christians we can when our faith is very vibrant in the Lord Jesus. Uh, it's exam time for school. I had a lot of my students in the previous worship service glaring at me when the lights came on. You gave us the test. So uh, yeah, they uh, they exams are exams are actually kind of fun if you're the professor. Just gonna be honest with you, you kind of torture them a little bit. Just kidding, not sort of. So uh, let's talk about today: how God tests us to deepen our faith, and we're gonna see that in the story of Abraham and and with Isaac in a second. But to get us to get us thinking along these lines about what I think the author of Hebrews is gonna be saying to us here. Uh, is this picture, look at it on the screen. I I would try to pronounce the name of these Russian cosmonauts. It would not come out correct, so I'm just going to stick with cosmonauts. That's a little easier to say. So in in 1982, in the early 80s, the Russians sent up a space station called Salyut. And what they did in Salyut was that they wanted to test the the effects of long-term zero-g environment on the human body. So these two guys were the first guys that spent a really long time in space. They spent 211 days in space consecutively. And they wanted to see what uh, the effect of zero G would be on them. They came back to Earth and wow, did it have an effect. First of all, these guys had very high uh, pulses. They had heart palpitations. Uh, They had some other things, but most notably, their muscles had so atrophied in space that when they pulled these guys out of the capsule, neither of them could walk on their own. In fact, it took them seven days before they could walk on their own, and then 30 days after having come back to Earth, after 211 days of space, they were still trying to recover from weakened muscles and even weakened hearts. So uh, the Russians had intended to keep sending cosmonauts up to Salyut. In fact, they wanted to get pushed the environment push the boundary, get somebody up there for an entire year. So after what they discovered with these two guys, the Russians invented this thing called a penguin suit. It's, uh, it's a real kind of weird-looking deal. It's, remember, it's the early 80s, so they took a track suit. Who can relate to that? Child of the 80s. They took a jogging suit, a track suit, and they put all these elastic bands on them. And every single move the astronaut would make would give them resistance, the body. And so what happened was they were trying to keep, even in zero G, to move, you're going to have to exert some kind of a muscle, and it was to keep them up there longer and their muscles not atrophy. So this resistance is what did it. And, you know, when you lift weights, you're just, in an ultimate sense, putting resistance on the muscles. When you put resistance on something, what happens? It strengthens. It grows. So this is where we're going to come at in our study of Hebrews 11, uh, about when God kind of gives us some resistance in our faith. Our faith kind of hits a little difficult time, and it's time to grow. Now, we don't like this, right? It's not easy. It's not comfortable. In fact, what we would rather do is we would rather read in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, and what we want to do is just focus on all the victories that these people had, right? Focus on all the mountaintops these people had. But the real cold hard reality of growing in christ is that you're going to have difficult times and some of these times god is going to send you away to test you and so to strengthen your faith in him so we come to hebrews chapter 11 and we're just going to read three simple verses this morning and it's verses 17 and 19 and it is the account of abraham being commanded by god to sacrifice isaac Now, the companion that goes along with this, because the writer of Hebrews leaves a lot of the details out, if you want to just jot down next to here, it's Genesis 22. Most of the 22nd chapter of Genesis is the account of God telling Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac. Here is the author of Hebrews summary of Genesis 22. By faith, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, that whole story in the Bible gives a lot of people heartburn. All right, now let's just think about some of the reasons why. Uh, First of all, it seems to be complete contradiction to what we would know of God and to the Christian faith that God would ever command Abraham to sacrifice his son. By the way, we read in the Old Testament that human sacrifice is something strongly condemned by God. So if God strongly condemns human sacrifice, then why in the world has he commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son? Now, let me just park right here for one second. I'm going to jump off the sermon. I'm going to jump onto my soapbox. I'm going to try to jump back off of it. But just real quick, I'm going to chase this rabbit down the hole. Uh, Man, I get tired of reading people that read the story of Abraham and Isaac and go, Aha, see, all this stuff in here is made up. Because this is just a total contradiction over here in the Old Testament. It says that you're not supposed to sacrifice humans. And yet over here in the Old Testament, God is commanding Abraham to sacrifice a human. So that just goes to show you all this is made up. Now, listen to me. Look at me. When you read in the Bible an apparent contradiction, and when you read in the Bible something that seems to be unbelievable, if you think about it in a way, it actually argues the opposite of what the skeptics say. Because the skeptics read contradictions and unbelievable things in the Bible, and they say, ah, see, this was all just made up by by a bunch of people. Okay, if a bunch of people made this up and wrote all this stuff in the Bible, don't you think these people would have the brains and the common sense to not include contradictions? Think about it. I think you see this in the Gospels. If four dudes get together at the Jerusalem Starbucks one day and say, hey, here's a fun idea. Let's invent a religion and try to dupe a bunch of people into actually believing it. Oh, that's a great idea. We'll say that this guy named Jesus was the son of God and he did all this stuff. Now, you listen to me here. If you're creating a story that is made up and you want it to be believable, Do you think your story is going to start with the protagonist being born of a virgin, calming storms with a word, raising people from the dead, and then raising himself from the dead? All of that is unbelievable. If you want people to believe this, why include those things? I'll tell you why it's included in the Bible, because it actually happened. And you need to remember that the men who tell us about the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus gave their lives for this. Doesn't sound very made up to me. So when we come across something like this, let's not get heartburn. Now let's ask some of the questions, okay? Why, why, if God condemns child sacrifice, why would he ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, okay? Let's go back now. Here we are at the very beginning of something the beginning of the nation of the people of God, the nation of Israel. Abraham is the founder of this. So as God is beginning the nation of his people, as God is going to be giving us this revelation scripture, the book of Genesis, uh, we are talking about some very, very extreme things here. So with that, I would say to you, God, don't ever read Genesis 22 and look at that and go, well, you know what? God may one day call me to sacrifice my child. No, he will not. Because none of us in the room is founding the nation of Israel, and none of us in the room are writing anything that will be on the level of divinely inspired scripture. So let's just put this in some context. And before we get on God's case and being so cruel to Abraham to ask him to give up Isaac, just remember, is this not exactly what God did, giving up his son? Now, you might step back from that and say, okay, I'm with you on all that, but still, it's incredibly cruel for God to do this to Abraham. I mean, come on, God. Couldn't you have come up with some other ways to test Abraham? I mean, let's just put ourselves in the shoes of Abraham for a second. God comes to him and says, hey, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and uh, uh, we'll talk about that one in a moment, that it's the only son, um, which is another apparent contradiction here. Uh, I want you to take Isaac. I want you to sacrifice him. And so what does Abraham do? Abraham loads up the wood on the mule and the donkey. He loads up Isaac and off they head off towards Mount Moriah. And they spend the night at the base of Mount Moriah in the tent. And can you imagine the sleepless night that Abraham would have had in that tent the night before he's going to kill his only son here? So you look at that and go, wow, that's incredibly cruel, God. Hang on. Hang on. One of the reasons we look at something like this and say that's incredibly cruel, it's very ungodlike is, uh, wow, we're really, really good at minimizing and watering down the extent and the desire to which God wants to deepen and shape our faith. I think a lot of times as Christians, we kind of take God growing us and deepening us in our faith we kind of take it like one of those online courses you know you ever seen those or taking one of those hey here's a 12-week online course and if you're really with it you can take all 12 weeks in two weeks you can do all the readings and all the exams and all the assignments or you can just take the full 12 weeks or i don't know maybe you split it up and spread it out over two two semesters but the whole thing is you go at your own pace right you do what's comfortable for you friends Newsflash, that ain't how God works. God is not going to come and send you a test and shape and deepen your faith on your terms. He's going to do it on his terms. And sometimes we forget just how much and to just what extreme God may go to to shake you out of your sinfulness and selfishness and status quo to get you deeper and deeper in your faith with him. Now, let's just unpack what we've read here for a minute, okay? So this is, this is God testing Abraham, right? When he was tested, so here we go, we, we see it. All right, now let's just, let's just kinda of put one thing out of the way here that's an important thing when we talk about God testing us. We need to understand what is the difference between a test and a temptation, all right? So let me teach you this. Tests come from God. Temptations come from Satan. Tests are aimed at helping us to do what is right. Temptations are aimed at encouraging us to do what is wrong. Tests, in the end, even though they may not be easy or pleasant, tests, in the end, strengthen and build our faith. What do temptations do? Temptations are aimed at weakening and destroying our faith. So there's a difference here. And sometimes I think we say, oh, it's really, really hard to determine the difference. Uh, I don't think it's as difficult as we think it is. You know, here's James 1 on the screen. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God's not going to do anything in your life that's going to cause you to, to, to have a weaker or diminished or destroyed faith. God's plan for you, God's working in you, is always to strengthen and build you up, never to tear you down. So we have to remember that. Now, one of the things where we might get a little bit confused about a test and temptation, you've probably seen this in your life, like I have. Let's say you have a season of sin, let's say you've done something wrong, you're disobedient, and now the hard thing that you're going through is actually the consequence of your sin. And so sometimes we might look at this difficult thing and say, oh, wow, it's okay. This is God testing me. When in reality, if I am honest, I will understand, hey, no, this is not God testing me. This is me suffering the consequence of my sin. And if you are honest and realize, wow, yeah, I was not being being obedient. I have sinned. I'm in the middle of this, this consequence of it. If you're there, then simply repent of your sin repent of that and obey the Lord but look if we're committed to God and we understand the differences between a test and a temptation who is behind them and what the ultimate goal of them is well then I think it's it's not as hard to distinguish the two as we think now here's another one why does God give us tests well he does so because he wants us to be close to him and many times it is in the midst of the test we find ourselves closest to God you agree with that You've been there before, right? You're going through a real struggle, some kind of test. I mean, Why does God bring these tests in me? To shake me from my self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and independence, and to move me to dependence and reliance upon him, not on myself. Now, what's fascinating to me is, just, just think about this. What's fascinating to me here is the whole thing with Abraham and Isaac is in the context of worship, isn't it? What, what, what happens in sacrifice in the Old Testament? Uh, when someone is sacrificing something in the Old Testament, what are they doing? They're worshiping God. And so here is, is actually Abraham going to sacrifice someone, his son. The whole picture, the whole setting is the worship of God. And I would not doubt for a moment that the night before in that tent and the whole moment through all this, as difficult as this would have been for Abraham, uh, Abraham is about as close to God as he's been. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. Remember Matthew 14? A very important scene in the life of the disciples. So the disciples are in the boat. And here comes the storm, and the disciples begin to panic. Ah, we're going to die, we're going to die. And then they kind of look out, and here's somebody walking towards them on the water. And at first it's like, oh, it's a ghost. I mean, not only are we going to die, but we're going to be haunted by a ghost. It's doubly bad. And then it gets a little closer, and the guys are like, oh, wait, that's Jesus. Walking on the water towards us. And so I remember, "Hey, hey, Jesus, come save us. And Jesus is like, hey, why don't you guys have a little faith in Come over here to me. And we always get on Peter's case, right? He gets out of the boat, takes a few steps, and sinks. Before you're too hard on Peter, just remember the other 11 cowards never got out of the boat at all. What does Jesus do? He saves Peter from sinking in the water. They get in the boat. Jesus calms the storm. And then they kind of stop at the story, but don't forget this very important detail. And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. Now what happens next? And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. By the way, you can read Matthew 14, and I think you can objectively, honestly say, to this point in the gospel, this is as close as the guys have gotten to Jesus. This is the first mention of them worshiping Jesus. And so recall, here's the journey right here. Here they are, they're, they're just fishermen doing their thing. Jesus calls them, hey, come follow me. They're like Abraham. They leave everything and say, hey, okay. And they follow Jesus and they hear him teach and then they see him do a miracle and they see him do another miracle and they, they hear Jesus say he's the son of God and then he does some more miracles and then they finally come to this point and in the midst of a test, right? In the midst of a very, very severe crisis, what happens? They worship the Lord. And not only do they worship the Lord, they come to the realization, wow, all this stuff you've been saying, Jesus, is true. You are the Son of God. So, God uses these tests to draw us closer to him. And back to the screen, look at James 1.12 with me. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Do you see the wording in this verse? Uh, I, I don't really rejoice and enjoy tests. In fact, I, I think it's kind of abnormal for anyone to go, oh, yay, I get another test. Oh, yes, this is going to be a difficult time. No, and, and nowhere are we supposed to go seeking tests or seeking difficult times. Trust me, if you're breathing, they're going to find you. Listen. I don't rejoice, I don't necessarily enjoy the test. What I rejoice in is the outcome. What do the words say? Hey, I stand up, I withstand. That doesn't sound very pleasurable to stand it. What am I rejoicing in? The crown of life, the end, the result. All right, so then comes this. Why does God test me? Okay, now when we talk about tests, now what we want to know is, well, how do I pass the thing? Okay? If I got to take an exam, <laughs> if I got to be in a test, uh, how do I do this? So here's the first thing I think we learned from Abraham in this, in this passage right here is this. First thing we to do is we got to be convinced of God's plan. Now, look with me at the end of verse 17 and at verse 18 here. Okay? This this, this is one of the reasons it's got to be incredibly difficult for Abraham. First of all, the end of verse 17 says that God tells Abraham to offer up his only son. Hang on. Is Isaac the only son of Abraham? No, he's not, is he? Abraham has another son by a woman named Hagar named Ishmael. But that wasn't a moment in his life when he was not trusting in God's plan. And what does he do? He gets ahead of God. He doesn't, he doesn't think God's going to be able to do the plan. So he says, God, I'm going to take matters in my own hands, and I'm going to take Hagar and sleep with her and have a son with her. And remember, we talked about this a few Sundays ago. When you get out in front of God and you don't trust God's plan, uh, sometimes we tend to have Ishmael's in our life. So now Abraham is trusting in God's plan. But w- w- what's the catch, Okay. And when it says his only son, because it's talking about the only son, the son of promise, through which God would be able to fulfill or would fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham. So you get to verse 18. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So here's what happens. Let's go back. God comes to Abraham. Abraham, come follow me. Quit worshiping the moon and come follow me. And Abraham says, okay. Okay. And then God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you two big promises. I'm going to give you all this land, and I'm going to give you descendants, more than the stars of the sky, more than the grains of sand on the seashore. We learned last week that Abraham got neither of those this side of of the earth. But he realized that God was going to bring those promises to fruition after his death. But here's the thing. God has promised, Abraham, you're going to have all these children. And I'm going to do it through the child of promise, the one I'm going to give you here, Isaac. And so Abraham is doing the calculus here, and Abraham's like, wait a minute. If I kill the son of promise, all these descendants are going to come through Isaac. If I kill Isaac, God, how are you going to fulfill your promise? How are you going to do all of this? So you start doing the math, and two and two is not making four right here. And yet what does Abraham do? He obeys. Here's a lesson for you and me. The lesson for you and me here is that um, God many times will tell us to do something in his word, lead us to do something that's just going to be a head scratcher. It's not going to make sense to you and me. By the way, this is true of a lot of characters in the Bible. Uh, Adam and Eve. Don't you think Adam and Eve want to ask God, you know, God, <laughs> uh, why, why this one tree? Why can I not eat from this one tree? You give me all these other trees, you give us all these other things we can do. What's the deal with the one tree? We want to know. As far as we're told, Satan tries to give them a little reason for that, but it's not true. Uh, Noah. Hey, Noah, I want you to build me a boat. Okay, that seems like an odd request. Uh, Hey, Noah, here's the specs for the boat. Okay, whoa, that is a really, really big boat. (laughs) Wait, how are you going to flood the earth? Joshua. Hey, Joshua, Moses is dead. Joshua wants you to take the people across the Jordan River. By the way, I'm going to dry the Jordan River up for you so the people can go across it. As soon as you get across the Jordan River, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take Jericho. Whew. Jericho is an impregnable city, huge tall walls, very thick walls. And Joshua's like, whoa, God, that, <laughs> that's tough. I mean, we don't have really a trained army here, and that's a big city, a big fortified city there. And, uh, you know, how you want us to fight it, God, you're going to give us siege engines, you're going to give us training, you're going to give us, what are you going to give us? And God says, I want you to go and walk around the city. Huh? I want you to walk around the city. And then I want you to just quit for the day. And then I want you to get up the next day and I want you to walk around the city again. By the way, I want you to do this for six days in a row. And on the seventh day, I want you to walk around the city seven times. Now don't you know to Joshua, that's a bit of a head-scratcher? And what do these people do? They obey. Now let's just put some application on that. Listen to me. Following God... And obeying the Bible means it's going to challenge you and bring some kind of friction, resistance, contradiction to your life. It's going to. If I'm going to read the Bible and see everything that God says me to do in the Bible, it, it's going to contradict me. It's going to challenge me in that, hey, I don't really want to believe that. or I don't really want to have to do that, God. Think about this. What if everything in the Bible was easy to obey? Right? Let's let's just face it. Would we not get a little along easier in the world? Would it not be a little easier to be a Christian today? Would there be as much conflict between the culture and the world and the church if it didn't have a couple of verses of of, of Scripture and passages in this book? You know, if it said right over here that this was not a sin, and if it said this was not a sin, and it said this was not a sin, you know what? It'd be a whole lot easier to get along in the world. And if I read the Bible and it's not challenging me to die to self and and to live to Christ, it would be a lot easier. But listen. If the Bible has no challenge, if it has no thing that contradicts our thoughts, our selfishness, or the world, then what do you get? You get nothing but easy street, and you get zero G. And you get a bunch of Christians living in zero G, and what happens? They become atrophied and weak. This book right here has got a lot of tough things in it. It's got some things that we just almost wish there weren't in there. But here we are. Now, you look at me, and I'm going to tell you something about this book, and I want you to remember this. There is nothing in this book that is up for debate. What is up for is for us to obey it, even when it doesn't make sense, and even when it makes life hard sometimes. That's what we are called to do. Now, you just, you just think about this. Now, let's put this on some human terms. To really have a relationship with someone, there almost has to be a little bit of this contradict challenge thing. I need people in my life and I need people I work with that can challenge me and give some resistance. I need people that I trust enough and hopefully I'm humble enough to listen to. I need people that will not just be yes men. I need people that'll look at me that I work with, people around me, people that'll say, hey, you know what, that's not a very good idea. Hey, I don't think you should have said that. I think we need to, you know, I, I need that in my life. And if we didn't, if everything was just super smooth and easy, would we really have a relationship that's growing and healthy? Think about your, think about your spouse. Think about a married couple. <sighs> right? Uh, if you're married in here and you've never had any conflict, it's been nothing but smooth, easy sailing in your marriage, raise your hand. hmm But think about it. What if everything with my wife was just super easy? I mean, my wife and I never had a disagreement. My wife and I never had any kind of conflict. And you know, and my wife never once kind of put me in my place or kind of contradicted me or kind of challenged me. I need my wife to do that because last I checked, I'm not perfect. I'm far from it. And this is what gives my wife and I relationship if my wife and I never had any kind of conflict, never had any, any hard thing to go through, if it was just zero G the whole time, would we really have a relationship? You remember that novel that came out in the 70s called The Stepford Wives? Y'all remember that? And the, the husband and wife, they moved to the Stepford, Connecticut, a small town, and the lady of the couple that's come to town, she starts to get to know the other ladies in Stepford, Connecticut, and she realizes real quick something ain't right with these women in this town because they always have a smile on their face, they never have a down day, they're always happy, they're always chipper, and they always just walk and flit and float around like uh, June Cleaver, right? If you don't know who June Cleaver is, ask somebody in the room my age or older, okay? And finally, you get to the end of the book, and they made a couple of movies about this too, but you get to the end of the book and the lady realizes, oh my goodness, all these women are robots. One of the men in town worked for the animatronics at Disney and the men in Stepford, Connecticut have actually invented, they've, they've fabricated robot wives to make their lives as easy and pain-free as possible. As a result, they're robots, meaning they have no relationship with their wives. So friends, God's going to challenge us. His word Is gonna go against the grain of the world and the culture and what we might think, and that's okay. Here's the next thing. I gotta be convinced about God's plan. I gotta trust it. Here's the next thing, though. I gotta be convinced of His provision. So you look at verse eighteen. Look at verse nineteen. Look at this, or or, let's wait on that. Let's just draw this. Let's just draw this from Genesis twenty-two. If God has a plan for me. And the plan is not that I'm healthy, wealthy, and wise. The plan is not that I'll be undefeated on my football team. But the plan for me is to die to self and grow deeper in my faith. The plan for me is to have salvation and eternal life. This is God's plan. All right, what is God going to give me to get me from point A to B? Okay, if the plan is challenging, which we've already said, then God's going to have to kind of help me out. He's going to have to give me some provision, right? And man, this is so wonderful. This is, this is how all this works out great. Watch this. You go to Genesis 22. Very important. When you're studying Scripture, man, just get all the words. When you go to Genesis 22, they get up there to the Mount Moriah. They're going to set things up for the sacrifice, and Isaac looks at Abraham and says, how's this going to go down, Dad? By the way, another little soapbox to chase. Let's give Isaac a little credit. Remember, in Genesis 22, Isaac is 15 years old. He ain't six or seven. And you remember, how old is Abraham? 100 passed in the rearview mirror a long time ago. You think a 15-year-old boy can get away from a 115-year-old man? P- probably so. I think there's a, some kind of faith on Isaac's part in here. But when Isaac looks at Abraham and says, okay, Dad, how's this all going to go down? Remember Abraham's response? Abraham does not say, in Genesis 22, um... There will be a ram, or God will provide a ram. You know what he says? The words are very important. He says, God himself will give us the ram, himself. And when Abraham says, God himself will provide, he doesn't realize it, but it's a giant flashing neon arrow to Jesus. Jesus hey, God's plan for you is to have salvation and eternal life. There's only one provision that can give you that, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. If Jesus does not come to this earth and die on the cross for our sin, then the provision is not there for us to have the fulfillment of God's plan. Now, do you see how all this just dovetails so beautifully in the whole book of Hebrews now? All right, so what's happened, what, 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 God himself, look, do you think you can go to any ideology or any person or anything on this earth and get better provision for yourself than from God? And what has the theme of Hebrews been? There is no one, there is no thing, there is no ideology, there is no religion that is greater than Jesus. Jesus. Why would you want to turn back to the provision of selfishness and worldliness? Why not keep focusing on Jesus who alone can provide for you the provision to fulfill God's plan for you? So we have Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And here comes our problem. I think a lot of us have kind of started down this journey of faith in God and we kind of tasted God and we said, oh, you know what? God is good, but I don't know if he's as good as something I had before I came to faith in Christ. One of my classes in the Trinity at OBU, have been teaching them a lot about Augustine. This is a somewhat kind of famous thing that, that Augustine wrote. I, I don't know how to say this in church and in private company, I mean, a uh, 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 appropriate company, whatever. But let's just put it this way. Before Augustine came to faith in Jesus, he was a ladies' man. He liked the ladies. I can hear my wife laughing. Thank you for laughing at that. By the way, never mind. Here's what he said. Look what he said. Look look what he said. As I prayed to God for the gift of chastity, I had even pleaded, grant me chastity and self-control, but please, not yet. Thank you. That's funny. You should laugh at that. Hey, God, I want this. I want to be pure, but not yet. See what it says. He says, I was afraid that you might hear me immediately and heal me forthwith of the morbid lust which I was more anxious to satisfy than to snuff out. Do you all see what, he, all see what Augustine says? What does he say? Hey, God, You're good. But you're not as good as this. That's what he's saying. And man, that just hits us right where we live, does it not? How many times, here I am, I'm going through this test, I'm going through this struggle, I'm trying to die to self, I'm trying to get deeper in my faith. And what do we do? God says, here's here's the provision in Christ. Here's the provision through faith. And we say, yeah, that is great. Your word is great. Prayer is great. All All these wonderful things are great. But here's the thing. I'm wondering if it's really as great as my lust or my you name it. And so I come back. Ain't a thing, ain't a thing, ain't a thing you will ever find or experience that is better than what God gives to you. And so here's the last thing. Uh, I, I forgot this. Ten years ago, February, the youngest guy to ever win the Daytona 500, 20 years old in one day, Trevor Bain, wins the race, biggest race in NASCAR, goes to the press conference, says this to the reporters, until we realize that Christ is our only satisfaction, we will continually be lusting for more of something that will never satisfy. When I read that quote, I remember then thinking, Hebrews, Hebrews, book of Hebrews. You can go back and chase all this stuff you want to that you think is good. It's going to be ash in your mouth until you turn to Christ. Here's the last thing. His plan, his provision, his power. Now verse 19. So verse 19. So Abraham says he considered, he thought about it. He, he worked through it, right? He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So, Abraham's doing the calculus here, right? He's trying to do all the the math on this. Now, wait a minute. If I kill Isaac, how in the world can God fulfill his promise? But he is so convinced of God's plan and so convinced of God's provision that he thinks, I'm going to go to the top of Mount Moriah. I'm going to plunge this knife into this kid's chest. And the only possible way that God can still be true to his promise after I've killed Isaac is to bring him back to life. And before you go default into, well, I would have killed my son too if I knew that God was going to raise him from the dead, Uh, this was not easy. He considered. He weighed all this. This is still a massive step of faith. But at the end of the day, Abraham believes God's plan is what's best for him. He believes God's provision is going to provide for him. And he believes that God has the power to do this. You know? How many of us, we get in the middle of a tough time and we think, God, can you really get me out of this? God, are you really going to work something in this? Do you, do you really have some kind of purpose in this? So I had a good story to tell at the end, but I'm kind of out of time. So I want you, everybody to just look at me, and I'm, I'm just going to end it with this statement. You ready? Here's what we learned from Abraham. Here it he comes. Listening. What we learn from Abraham sacrifice and Isaac is this. God is going to test you with the thing you value the highest to strengthen you to love him the most. If I could go back and ask Abraham, Abraham, what did you value the most? He's probably going to tell you that boy, the child of promise. And God's going to test him on the thing he values the most to strengthen his faith to love God the highest. Let's pray to God. Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. and Thank you for the way it teaches us and encourages us, God. Lord, tests are, <laughs> tests are hard. They're not easy. They're difficult. But Father, the fact that you're testing us is just the reminder that you, you love us and want us to grow in your plan of us being more like your son, Jesus. So, Father, I want to pray for anyone listening to me today that has not made a commitment to follow Jesus by faith. They're enjoying the things of self and sin and world, and they think that that's the, that, that, they think that's the best there is, that this is good. Lord, would you show them that you are better and show them that you are greater and that following you by faith, Father, is the way to go. And we pray, Lord, for those of us on this journey of faith that we would not lose hope in the midst of a test. And we pray, Father, that you would truly indeed help us to trust in your plan and your provision and your power to do what you want to do in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.